Welcome to Liquid Church Media. The message you're about to enjoy was originally delivered live at Liquid Church by Pastor Tim Lucas. For more content, log on to liquidchurch.com or visit one of our campuses in the New Jersey metro area. Liquidchurch.com, where truth is relevant and grace wins. Particularly Nutley, New Brunswick. Love you guys watching online. Thrilled you're here for our series poll. It's on faith, politics, the future of America. I don't know if you, you know this, but we're only five or six weeks away from the presidential election. Is that amazing? It's actually growing uh, very, very close, which means uh, late night comedians are having a field day. Um, I watched uh, Letterman, Letterman, Conan, you know, Jimmy Fallon all this week, and um, I was like, you know what? Let me, this, is, this can be like a heavy topic. So I was like, let me just kind of open up just with a few reflections on some of our, uh, on some of our candidates, because uh, depending on what party you're for, I, th- these guys are equal opportunity offenders. I don't know if you heard this, uh, but the New York Times reported that uh, half of Obama's Twitter followers are fake. They don't actually even exist, which is a good thing, because if they did exist, they wouldn't have any jobs. Oh, oh, hey, hey. Watch out there. Hey. Mitt Romney released his, uh, his uh, taxes uh, uh, this, this week, and um, it's interesting because he pays about 13% income tax, which I think is fair because only 13% of his money is in the country anyway. It's, uh, you know, <laughs> hey, oh, hey, waking him up. Waking him up. I shouldn't, right, we, we don't want to rank on uh, Mitt Romney, particularly his wife, Ann Romney. She's been trying to humanize him, and she acknowledged he actually has a secret addiction to caffeine-free Diet Coke or as it's known in the Mormon community, the ultimate gateway drug. <laughs> oh, oh, offending everybody today. All the Mormons are like, Arr, it's kind of. <laughs> finally, finally uh, the government uh, has been threatening maybe it may shut down. And if the government does indeed shut down, the White House is going to be laying off all non-essential employees. That includes interns, pages, Joe Biden, all of the uh, kind of just... <laughs> thank you. Thank you very much. Hey, good night, everybody. We'll see you next week. Yeah, we'll just, we'll just. I, some people get offended, like when you joke about politics, because they're like, you know, this is a serious time, you know, in our nation's history. And that is true, right? You've, you've seen it in the news. All over the world, people are chanting, you know, in the Middle East, death to America, uh, except in China, where they're, where they're, where they're chanting, uh, not until we get our money back. Uh, it's, you know, equal opportunity offender. I'm just poking a little fun. And you know what the problem is with political jokes? Sometimes they get elected. That, that's the big, big issue in my... <laughs> I'm killing them today. It's like... I'm sorry, man. Pastor Tom was like, that's funny. Just say it. You know, it's like... I, I honestly had to lighten it up a little bit for myself because this gets to be a real heavy topic around this time of year. Um, you, you, like, have to laugh about these things or you would cry because our nation is facing these, like, epic challenges right now, you know, with the economy, the Middle East, and whoever gets elected... Uh, one thing is for certain, they will need Solomon-like wisdom to, uh, you know, really steer our country this fall and turn our nation around and, and navigate big 
global issues. And uh, if you remember, um, last week we were drawing a very sharp distinction between church and state, two very different things, the kingdom of, of God that we serve in as followers of Jesus Christ, and then the country we live in as citizens of the United States. And, and, and the government of man is, is underneath the government of God, but, but the Bible makes it very clear that we're actually to look at ourselves as Christians before we are Americans. And that's not being unpatriotic. That's simply prioritizing a faith in God above the politics of man, because historically, when the church and state have gotten confused or people have kind of joined them together, it's had res disastrous results. It began 2,000 years ago uh, with the Emperor Constantine, if you remember. He made Christianity the official state religion of the Roman Empire, and it continued, uh, you know, people just, uh, you know, then attached God to the kind of the party platform, and, and people do that today. They're like, well, Jesus would vote for this candidate, not this one, you know, conservative Republicans are Christians, not demonic Democrats, and certainly not independents. Uh, people get very polarizing. And here's the deal, guys. We said, you know what? Whenever Christians mix politics with religion in their pursuit of political power, the church inevitably compromises its witness for Jesus Christ. Um, as Constantine helped Christianity kind of be legalized and it spread across the empire, that means the church gained political power. And guess what happened? Centuries of bloodshed followed. We had the Crusades. We had the Inquisition. It was not pretty. Followers of Jesus who once turned the other cheek now drew a sword against their enemies, and cut off their heads in the name of Jesus. Because you won't become a Christian, you're dead to the world. And the church really used the sword to against anybody who defied them. So we beheaded heretics, burned people at the stake, and that we acknowledge, you know what? That's part of our legacy, guys. That is a history of the church that we need to be honest about and repent of as the people of God. Because the gospel of grace, of love and forgiveness, the cross gets compromised in this. Whenever we get too politicized, as the church got in bed with the state, it's really a warning to us as modern believers. When we get passionate about using political power to advance the cause of Christ, something bad happens. Something gets lost in translation. Because when you go to bed with Constantine, you wake up smelling like Caesar. So the Bible says, I want you to draw a sharp distinction between these two things, the cross and the sword. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of man. Church and state, the cross and the sword, they're not the same thing. They're constantly in conflict. Turn to John 18. I want to show you how this interplay happens, would you? I read it again this week. This is a fascinating contrast in the Gospels between the cross and the sword. Just before Jesus was executed, at the hands of the state, at the urging of the church, Jesus appeared before Pontius Pilate. You've probably heard of him. Here's his picture. You can see this marble bust. Would you throw that up there, Nick? Um, this picture, honestly, throw it up there, Nick. Go ahead. That looks, he looks to me like a woman, honestly. Uh, but Pontius Pilate was the governor, okay? He was the Roman governor of Judea around AD 26, and he served under Emperor Tiberius, and he was the judge at Jesus' trial. Remember, after Jesus was arrested, Jesus was brought before the governor, Pilate, with this accusation. We have found this man subverting our nation. He, this is interesting, subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be Christ a king. In other words, they're like, he's not a patriot. Jesus is, is, is subverting the government. He is not paying taxes. Uh, he's part of the Tea Party. And he claims to be a king. That was a, a president of, of a basileia, a government, a kingdom. He's setting up a rival government to you. So the religious leaders, the church, start playing politics with the state. They say, Pilate... This guy is a threat to the sword, to Caesar, and we want you to condemn him because he's an enemy of the state. What's interesting is, it says in, in, in John 18, Pilate summoned Jesus 
and asked him, so are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, my kingdom is what? It is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now my kingdom is from where? Another place. In other words, I don't play by your rules. Your kingdom, your government is based on the power of the sword, the threat of punishment, capital punishment, power over people. But my kingdom will be built on the power of the cross, which operates fundamentally differently. It's about self-sacrificing love, where you actually serve other people, and if necessary, bleed and die for them. So two very different kingdoms in conflict we see here. And that applies, because whether it's the first century a dictatorship or a 21st century democracy, they wield power differently. The, 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 the state is power over people, whereas the church is power under people. As followers of Jesus, we're supposed to be willing to bleed and die like our Savior, to wash feet, to humbly serve people. That's our calling card and the authenticity that God's power is in our lives. Amen? Amen. Now, here's the interesting thing. If you look at this exchange between Pilate and Jesus, he's contrasting these two kingdoms, and Pilate goes like this. He goes, you are a king then. And Jesus answered, you're right in saying that I'm a king. In fact, for this reason I was born, and for this reason I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth, Pilate asked. You can tell he's a politician, right? <laughs> you know, wait, wait, you know, all these truth, truthiness, what is the definition of is, is, you know, it's a little bit politician, hey, politicians love playing with fuzzy language. And Pilate was a very cynical politician. You may be cynical about politics. And he thought all truth is relative. Because in modern politics, it's just like this in ancient politics. Truth is whatever the majority of the people want to hear. Basically, Pilate, he knew that Jesus was an innocent man. But like a good governor, he never let truth get in the way of his approval ratings. So he takes a poll of the people and he says, um, it's your custom for me to release you one prisoner at the time of the Passover. So do you want me to release this, you know, king of the Jews? And they shouted back, no, not him. We don't want that candidate. Give us Barabbas. Now, Barabbas had taken part in a rebellion. Barabbas was a criminal. He was, in fact, a murderer. He was part of the zealots, and he actually had murdered somebody. And the crowd's like, we'd prefer the murderer than Jesus. And, and, and Pilate is like, okay, it's politics, I guess. You know, truth doesn't always win. You got to play dirty. And he actually, knowing Jesus was innocent, has him flogged, severely beaten, and brings him back then one more time. And he says to him, do you refuse to speak to me? Do you realize I have what? I have power over you either to free you or to crucify you. Now catch this. Jesus answered, you have no power over me if we're not given to you from above. Significant. Jesus says the government only has power delegated to it by God himself. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free. <laughs> but the Jews kept shouting, if you let him go. You're no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. Give the church leaders this, man. These guys know how to play hardball. Because they're like, Pilate, are you against Caesar too? Pilate, you're not a patriot. They put him in a corner. They say, we want you to wield the government sword to neutralize Jesus for the church. He says, shall I crucify your king, Pilate asked? We have no king, next verse, but Caesar, the church Peace answered. And finally, next, would you put the next verse on, verse 13? This is significant, 15 and 16. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be what? 
crucified, executed by the hand of the state. So watch what happens here. The religious leaders, the church, pull the levers of political power. The Roman system of government turns into motion. And Jesus, the sinless son of God, the only innocent man to ever walk the face of the earth, is executed by the state on a Roman cross less than 24 hours later. The greatest act of injustice in human history. A political execution, a religious execution. The church partnering with the state to kill God's son. And this is a moment, guys, this is the darkest moment in the Gospels. This is when the kingdom of darkness had what seemed to be a brief moment of triumph. But what they didn't realize is that actually it would be Jesus' blood and his broken body that would be the seed for the church to rise. Amen? That's how, guys, that's our story. That's how we came into being. That's how mercy triumphed over judgment. That's salvation, guys. And all through the Gospels, there's this dramatic interplay between politics and religion. The love of power overcome by the power of love. If you are looking for a book that delves into this topic, um, let me recommend to you The Politics of Jesus by John Howard Yoder. It's required reading in a lot of seminaries and colleges. Just fantastic analysis of this. And, um, and this is going to speak to you because politics is always personal. And I don't want to set this up where you're like, oh, I get it. So government is all bad. Christians shouldn't bother with politics. Not true. I actually today want to talk about good government which may seem kind of like an oxymoron, you know? It seems like a surprise because some of you, I know what you're saying right now. You're like, no, 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 dude, politics is, is, is all, it, it's a dirty business. You just said it yourself. From the very beginning, it's corrupt. It's run by hypocrites, greedy politicians, corrupted through and through. It started with Jesus. We see it through the church. I'm done with it today. In fact, that's how a lot of young people feel about uh, government today. Um, earlier in the service, your campus pastor asked you, your opinion, to text in your answer to this live poll question, um, do you approve or disapprove of the way that Congress is handling its job? Um, this is how the results here in Morristown, New Brunswick, and Nutley, your answers are on your side screens, but if let's just take a look here for a sample and more, wow, this is amazing, look at this, almost 80% disapprove of the way Congress, Senate, the House, handling, handling its job. Actually, you guys were a little bit more generous at 80% disapprove. <laughs> The rest of the nation in a poll this past summer by Gallup, 90% disapproval rating. Take a look at this. It is the lowest in the 38-year history of Gallup's polls. Ten, only 10% of the American population says Congress is doing a good job. The highest approval rating was 84%. Anyone want to take a guess when that was? Yeah, it was about three weeks after 9-11, right? So our country came together, but now it has bottomed out. It's the lowest approval rating in the history of of Gallup, 90% disapproval. That, that is depressing. I mean, you know, we don't have a lot of, people don't have compassion for Congress, but think about this, how, how that would feel tomorrow, Monday morning, if you had a 90% disapproval rating. You're the boss, you walk into work, and 90% of the people are like, you suck. <laughs> that's awful. That is, that, that's why people are tuning out. Because they think Washington's a joke. They're like, it's dysfunctional, man. It's just noise. It's partisan bickering. They get nothing done. We have historic unemployment. Debt is skyrocketing at this moment. There's a credit downgrade. I had a woman say to me after the service, she said, honestly, Tim, when I first heard this series on politics, I was like, oh, I'm, I'm going to tune out because I, I just, I'm not interested in that. I said, why? She said, what good is government? And, you, know, you get what she's saying. She's like, Congress is gridlocked. All these crooks in the Capitol, she goes, they're just trying to get reelected. They will say or do anything, like Pilate, to hold on to power. It's a corrupt system, Tim. You said it yourself. And on one level, listen to me, she's correct on one level. Because the kingdom of man, ultimately, the Bible says, is actually ruled by Satan. 
Satan tempted Jesus by taking him before all the kingdoms of the world, all the governments, and said, if you just bow down to me, I will give you power over all the kingdoms of the world. In other words, I own them, Jesus. I'll give them to you. So in other words, every form of human government is inherently flawed because men are sinful. And without Christ, honestly, they are under the influence of corruption. Even people who go and, you know, take power with pure motives are capable of tremendous self-deception. So that's true, but listen to me. It would be a huge mistake, brothers and sisters, for Christians at large to abandon the role of government altogether. In fact, this series is not about pitting God versus the government. If you hear that, you're not hearing this correctly. Because biblically speaking, the government plays a very important plan in God's role for the civilized world. What is the role of government according to God, biblically? Before I tell you the answer, let's let's just do our second live polling question. So take out your phone. See what you know about what scripture says about government. Which of these is true? The Bible says to uh, pay your taxes. Is that in the Bible? Uh, Submit to government. Respect politicians. Is that in the Bible? Uh, All of the above, none of the above. Would you just right now take a minute, text your answer to 22333s, all right? Just text your answer. I'd be curious to see what people say here. Some of you already did that a little bit. I'm going to put my answer in here. Uh, Okay, wow, again, all the above. Okay, that's interesting. Some people are like, look, nobody voted for respect politicians. (laughs) Like, I I don't think so. I got some none of the above. Pay your your taxes. 10% of people are like, pay your taxes. I wish it wasn't in the Bible. You know, they're like, I don't don't really want to do that. Interesting. Okay, we had some fluctuation in other services. Nutley, New Brunswick, take a look at yours. I don't want to give you the answer. Let's do this. Let's open up our Bible for the answer at Romans 13. This is the key scriptural passage on the role of government in God's economy. We'll read this together. First seven verses of Romans 13, and then you'll see how you did on the quiz. Take a look at this. The Apostle Paul writes this. He says, Everyone must, what's the word? Submit, oh, himself to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been what? Established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. Watch this. For rulers who hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from the fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right and he will commend you. For he is God's servant to do you good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not what? Bear the sword for nothing. He is God's servant, an agent of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, Paul writes... It's necessary for you, Christian, to submit to authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but because of your conscience. This is also why you pay taxes, Ah. for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give everyone what you owe him. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If what? If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. In other words, brothers and sisters, the correct answer is all of the above. Incredibly. How many of you got that right? Some of you are like, you wish it wasn't right. You're like, I don't want to pay the taxes. Incredibly, God's word gets very practical here about the role of good government. Notice first, the Bible says that government, all government is established by God. You notice that? Point number one. Paul's like, government is ordained by God to keep order so that society isn't just total anarchy. And any authority that our government has, understand this, you know where its authority comes from? From God himself. 
In other words, God delegates authority to human governments. And that's why we say we are one nation, what? Under God. It's not the other way around. Our leaders are elected by men, but they're established by God, according to the Bible, to rule over an instrument of justice. That's what you see in verse 2 and 3. It's about punishing those who break the law. Government basically has two rules. You enforce the laws to control public behavior. Talked about this last week. Remember, it's why you slow down when you see a cop. Because he's got the power of the sword. He's not going to use the sword, but he's going to throw the book at you. He can use the power of the state to get you to control. They don't care about you being a a loving citizen. They're just like, just stay in line. And they do that through the threat of punishment. Look at verse 4. If you do wrong, be afraid. Because the government does not bear the sword for nothing. It's God's servant, an agent of wrath used to bring punishment on the wrongdoers. This is happening right now in the Middle East. If you saw, uh, you know, the devastating news, the U.S. ambassador to Libya was killed. Uh, The U.S. consulate there in Libya was burned to the ground. It was actually an act of murder. And it was very interesting because President Obama, who doesn't use, you know, bellicose language, he said, make no mistake, we will bring those responsible to justice. That's code for I'm about to wield the sword. And this is not going to get pretty. There's going to be retribution. There are Marines steaming there right now, and I'm going to bring them to justice. That's the role of the government. And that's why we're told to submit to its authority. It says not only because of possible punishment, but because of conscience. I understand this word sends flags for people like, wait, are you just saying submit? I don't like it. Submit to your husband. Submit to it. Why is the Bible always talking about submission? Listen to me. All submission is about submitting to an imperfect person out of reverence for Jesus Christ. It's just like in marriage. When we say, you know, submit to your spouse, why do we say that? It's not because they're perfect. Are you married to a perfect person? No, but you submit to them because they're God's perfect choice for you. Did we have a discrepancy there? Some people are like, oh, (laughs) would you like to poll that? That's so what we say, wives, submit to your husband, not because he's perfect, but because he's God's ordained leader in that relationship. Children, submit to your parents. Pastors, serve and lead the church. All healthy relationships in our world are based on servant leadership. That, they weren't called politicians at the beginning. They were called public what? Public servants. Now, there are all sorts of dysfunctional examples of that. You have the abusive husband. You have parents who neglect their kids. You have pastors who manipulate their congregation. But overall, the default idea of Scripture is that our leaders, our nation's leaders, are doing their duty. They're public servants. They're flawed. And that's why you pay your taxes. Jesus said, give to Caesar what's Caesar and to Uncle Sam what is Uncle Sam's. That's what he says. Look at this in verse 6. He says, they're God's servants who give their full time to governing, so you need to pay them. Give everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. And if respect, then respect. In other words, respect your leaders. You owe them that as well. And it doesn't matter what side of the aisle they're on. They're established by God and you are to respect their authority. Whoever's in office. Now imagine this, guys. I know this is going to be a stretch for some of you. You're like, I just can't respect that guy or this guy or whatever. Some of you are like, this is why we need the Holy Spirit. Help me, Jesus. I can't do this. <laughs> I, I, guys, honestly, I'm looking at Romans this week. I was like, this is a word in season for our culture. Because we live in a culture of partisan rhetoric and mudslinging and name bashing where it's okay to bash your leaders. You know what? And, and, and God, this is a matter of faith, guys. Paul is like, if you truly trust that nothing in this world happens apart from God's watch, that means you can have peace no matter what candidate is on the throne. 
Because you realize they're established by God. They have authority ordained by God. He's ordained that. And actually, to disrespect or rebel against it is rebelling against God himself. That's what Paul's saying. So you can, you can kick and scream. You can post poison rants on Facebook. But you're actually insulting God. As well as people, guess what, guys? Who are made in his image. This is going to come as a shock to some of you, that what I'm about to say. The president is actually a person. He's a human being. He's not this automaton robot who's about to drive our nation in a ditch. I know that's going to shock some of you, but guys, as Christians, do you know what our number one position is supposed to be towards the president according to the word of God? To pray for him. To pray for all of our leaders. Every single one of them, no matter what side of the aisle you are on. Because the amount of burdens that they bear, what the president is facing right now, we can have a president over every, every single one of these intractable issues, a president of the economy, a president of the deficit, unemployment, the war in Afghanistan, what's happening right now. What our leaders bear right now, the pressure you and I can't begin to calculate. Terror in the Middle East, what's happening right now, the situation between Israel and Iran racing towards nuclear war. You may not, I understand, listen to me. You may not like the president's diplomacy towards Israel, but that's the guy who God ordained to have his finger on the button at this moment in world history. God has charged him with responsibility for that decision-making. And we can't begin to imagine the heaviness and the weight of that that God has put on his shoulders. You know what Paul writes in 1 Timothy? He says, I urge you then, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercession, and get this, thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. Guys, that's a challenge to me. Is that, does that stretch you? Because I understand some of you don't like President Obama. Some of you do. In two months, the roles may be reversed. You'll be in different places. We may have a different president. But you know what? The Bible doesn't say give a cheer to either partisan on, on one side or the other. The word of God says, regardless of who's in charge, Christian, your number one responsibility is to pray for him. Pray for all of them. Pray for every single one of them, the president, the Senate, the house, everybody in authority. And you know what? Those are remarkable words. That's rem radical words. Not just now because you're like, oh, it seems very partisan. You can't imagine what was happening when Paul wrote these words. You know what was happening? Do you know who was on the throne when Paul wrote these words to the Christian church? Nero was emperor. He was a monster. Emperor Nero used to dip Christians in oil and light them on fire to use as human torches to light his garden parties. That's Emperor Nero. People thought he was literally the Antichrist. That's what the church thought. And in 64 AD, when the great fire destroyed a lot of Rome, Nero made Christians the scapegoats for it, and persecution just ignited through the empire. Christians were not only denied their rights, they were literally publicly butchered, they were burned alive, they were fed to animals. And in the middle of that context, Paul writes, I urge you, pray for him. I urge you, give thanks for him. Give thanks for all, kings, everybody in authority. That's our job as believers under the cross, that we can live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. Does that scandalize you? Does that stretch you? Think about praying for the Nero in your life. Because somebody came out of the last service and they said, huh, I, I wasn't thinking about the president or Nero. I was thinking about my boss. Because the politics of corporate America, the idea of praying and thanking God, woo, that stretches me, Tim. 
I talked to another uh, person here who's like, you know, I know there are people who are fans of Governor Christie, but I'm a teacher. I got to pray for him? I was like, yes. They're like, help me, Jesus. They're like the, <laughs> guys, that's God's word to you. This is not my, this isn't black and white. I recognize that right now we live, compared to Paul, in very peaceful and quiet times. And it's easy to take good government for granted. And, but, but, but it's a command, brothers, sisters, that you're to pray for those in authority, for your worldly kings whether they're conservative or liberal, a Democrat or a dictator. In fact, can I just ask you this? Can we have an honest moment? Last, honest moment, last testing question. Have you prayed for the president in the last month? Last four weeks, just be honest. Can you just be honest there? If never, just say never. Once or twice, once or twice. If it's monthly, weekly. In fact, just, just be, again, be honest about this. I appreciate that. People are typing in. We, we put the codes with 44 because he's the 44th president. Right now, it's never, 100% never. Does anybody pray? Okay, a few people, okay. That's okay. You don't need to. Thank you for being honest. I'm going to, I actually, my answer is once or twice. And honestly, it's because I've been studying this stuff and feeling convicted. I'm like, I don't pray at all for our nation's leaders until something goes wrong. And then I'm like, Lord, we, if we're honest, guys, most Christians forsake our number one political responsibility, according to the word of God. We do not pray for our leaders. Or if we do pray, it's like this billboard. Have you guys seen this in Texas? Okay, there's this Texas billboard, very controversial. It says, pray for Obama, but then it has Psalms 109, verse 8 on it. Do you guys know what Psalm 109, verse 8 is? May his days be few. <laughs> and may another take his office. <laughs> it's true. It's a billboard in Texas. And, you know, it's funny. It's funny. But the problem is, the verse immediately following it says this, may his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. May no one extend kindness to him or take pity on his fatherless children. The Secret Service is actually investigating this billboard now because they're like, this may be a threat in the president. Guys, this is not a win for the church. This is not a win for being a Christ follower. When we do stuff like that, guys, it just makes us look stupid and petty and spiteful. I realize we live in this age of political rancor where it is like just the norm just to bash our leaders. But Jesus taught, Jesus stands before Pilate. He doesn't say a word. He says, I, he stood there silently. He said, you don't take the sword. You don't throw rocks or you cherry pick a verse to bash Caesar because you're actually insulting God. Whatever you think of the president or any of our leaders, God has established his authority and that means he's worthy of our honor and respect. Those aren't my words. It's the word of God. You take it up with him. So Romans 13, this is going to stretch you. It's stretching me. Whoever wins the presidency this fall deserves our prayers, whether it's Biden and Obama if they win re-election or Ryan and Romney take a spin in office. You've got to pray for them because the burden is crushing. I read a fascinating interview in Newsweek um, with the president where he said it was amazing. Him and Bush had lockstep agreement. They said the hardest job as commander-in-chief is visiting the bereaved families, the parents who have lost a 19 or 20-year-old in Afghanistan. And they do most of that off camera. And uh, they said, as a parent, it's wrenching to go up to meet a mother and father, they're like, who I made the decision to send their child to his death. They said, that's my burden to bear. In other words, I have to wield the sword. The sword is the authority of the U.S. government. In other words, it's a very heavy, heavy sword. And I don't know if you know this, but our current president, I was surprised to learn this, he actually has ordered more predator drone strikes on terrorists in the last two years 
than the last eight years of the previous administration. I was shocked by that. I'm no, I am no Obama apologist, guys. Honestly, I feel pain for whoever is, in, is leading our country in that position because the burden, the pressure must be extraordinary. Don't you think that? What they decide is literally life and death and affects hundreds of thousands of lives around the globe. I can't even imagine the pressure of that. He said the only, de the only, the decisions, the only decisions the president makes are the ones that have 60% probability of success. If it's higher than that, they delegate to other people to govern. They're like, I don't get paid to do that. So if it's like 70, 80% success, you decide that. But the president only gets to make decisions that have 60% chance of success. In other words, he goes in every decision knowing there's a 40% chance of failure, that he's going to be wrong. Would you take that job? You like those odds? Would you bear that responsibility? Can you say one good thing about the men who are saying, you know, I'm going to step up and try to serve in Washington? Here's one thing I can say. I don't, personally, I don't care for all of the president's policies, but I respect him as a father and as a husband. One of the things I really appreciate is he strikes me as a man of integrity and as someone who is actually sincere about his commitment to his wife and actually loves on his kids and he's trying to do the right thing and he's not perfect. And you know what? That's saying something after all that's gone on in the Oval Office over the last three decades. That is something to thank God for, a man who actually lives with integrity towards his wife and his family and actually tries to do the right thing. In any conversation I have, I always begin leading with that. Could you, do you lead with that way when you talk about people who you don't particularly agree with? You actually lead by, by pointing out one salient quality of their leadership, even if you profoundly disagree with the way they wield their politics. Can you actually honor Christ by picking out the person on the other side that you're like, you know what, I totally disagree, I profoundly disagree with that. But here's one good thing I can say by learn by listening to them. It's called humility, guys. And it's supposed to be our posture as followers of Jesus Christ. I feel like we should preface every criticism or barb with a compliment because it's not just Christ-like, it's winsome to people who actually are on the fence, who don't know where they are. I mean, we, we all know who you're voting for, okay? <laughs> like most people, they let it be known and they yell about it and everything. And our election is not going to be determined by people who know they're going to vote for already. <laughs> it's going to be determined by this thin slice of independents who haven't made up their mind. And guess what? You don't change anybody's mind when you go... Oh, he is a heartless, rich guy who hates the poor. He's a, he's a, he's a cold-hearted capitalist. You win nobody's mind. You don't win anybody's mind when you say, oh, he's a godless socialist. He's driving our country in a ditch. It's like talk radio. You, re, you give ammo to the, to the choir. Yeah! But you win nobody who actually is saying, you know what? I'd like to ha learn how to think critically about some of these issues. So come on, guys. Elevate the conversation on this. All four of these men need our prayers. They deserve our prayers. In fact, why don't we just pray for them right now so we just stop talking. Would you do that? Just bow your head. God, I just right now, I repent even of the ways that I've been flippant and critical, Lord, in ways that now I recognize have hurt you. Lord, we repent of the ways that we disparage our leaders and dishonor the living God. Lord, we just acknowledge they're just men. They're flawed and imperfect like us, but each one of them is made in your image. So I ask right now, would you give all of our nation's leaders unusual strength and wisdom and integrity as they steer our nation this fall? We actually pray right now, Father, for your Holy Spirit. Lord, we confess that the church of Jesus Christ, we're, we're neither right wing or left wing, and eagle needs both wings to fly. So would you bring us together as we humbly declare we're one nation under 
God. Heal our land in Jesus' name. All God's people said, amen. 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 Well, listen, guys, I don't want to, um, I actually want to challenge you. I want to leave you with this thought, a little challenge. Because this is going to stretch you. Who do you need to pray for? <laughs> but not who do you need to criticize. You, you know that. You can think that yourself. Who do you need to pray for? But no discussion about a godly response to good government is complete without talking about civil disobedience. Because you're like, what happens if the government goes off the rails? What happens if they violate moral standards as a Christian? Follow me. What you're holding in your hands, Romans 13, Paul says, I'm giving you basic instruction. Obey, pay, and then pray, right? He's like, your default as Christians, as, as peace-loving believers, is to live at peace with the government unless they violate your spiritual conviction. So our default is compliance. Unless the government's laws require you to violate Moral standards that are revealed by God himself. And when that happens, scripture is very clear, it is then your job, if the state comes in and says, we're doing it this way, to take up your cross and be counted. And if necessary, say, you know what? I'm not down with Nero. I'll pray for him, but I'm not going to bow down and violate my conscience. Think about this, guys. Paul wrote the majority of the New Testament. You know from where? Jail. Why was he in jail? Because Paul would go into a city, he would preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, and there would be a riot. <laughs> and then the authorities would say, stop preaching. He's like, I ain't stopping preaching. You throw him in jail. <laughs> They'd put him in chains. They'd stone him sometimes. Then he'd basically get out of jail, go back into the city, and preach the word again. They'd go back to jail. He wrote the majority of the New Testament where you're holding Romans in jail. And in the Christian tradition, it's important that you acknowledge that the government has authority, but it is limited. The state can never violate the eternal laws of the creator. Amen? For example, there once was a time in our nation's history when our government had laws on the books treating African Americans as second-class citizens, as an inferior race. Guys, this was one generation ago we're talking, okay? 50s. This was sin. This was on the books. It was deeply woven into our fabric as a people, but it was sin. And guess what? It was the church particularly the black church led by Dr. Martin Luther King, a minister of the gospel who said, you know what? We don't hold to this injustice. We're going to stand up with the cross of God in the gospel of Christ and be counted. And Dr. King mobilized the civil rights movement. He actually took on the state and he said, your racism is not more powerful than the laws of almighty God that all men are created in his image. And what's amazing to me about MLK is that he didn't tell his followers to play politics or swing a sword. He said, I want you all to carry a cross and no violence. He taught his people the gospel of enemy love, that when Christ stood before Pilate, he was silent. And when Jesus was punched and kicked and beaten, he absorbed it out of love. And three days later, triumph over darkness. That's where Dr. King got his strategy of nonviolent protest. From the gospel of Jesus, he would read these words over and over to his congregation. He would say, You've heard it said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. In other words, when Jesus said those words, he was like, you guys know this. The sword is power over. You hit me, they hit back. They hit us harder, we hit back harder. It's the politics of revenge. It's the way of the world. Jesus was saying this when he first said it. He said, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now, I want to leave you with a vivid illustration and I want to act this out. So can I have a volunteer for this? I want to make this real. Chuck, Chuck, can I grab you? I, thank you for that. I don't want to hit a woman. Chuck, come on up here. <laughs> I appreciate that. Our sister over there. Give Chuck a hand. Come on up, Chuck. 
Come on up, Chuck. Good to be with you, my man. Thank you. Okay, now just hold firm. Everyone pray for Chuck. Here it comes, right? Here we go. This is interesting because there's something embedded in here you probably don't know. It says if someone strikes you on the right cheek, which actually that's your left cheek. So this is your right cheek. Oh, that's significant. In the first century, it was cons- if you were a lefty, you were considered to have a birth defect. Do you know that? Sorry, lefties. You were considered to be like demoniac. So everybody used their right hand in the first century. It's true. It's actually true. So for me to hit Chuck on the right cheek with my right fist, wait, how do I do it? I have to hit him like this. In other words, if someone strikes you on the right cheek with a backhanded slap, that is the slap that says you're less than human. Who do you think you are? You're not, this is fun. I like this, man. This is good times. This is, we're getting into it, man. It's a certain kind of assault on the image of God in a person. I want you to imagine me, a Roman soldier, and saying, you stupid Jewish peasant, or me as a racist cop saying, you stupid Negro man. Oh, Jesus says, if the government or the state ever abuses its power over, you're to turn the other way and say, you can hit me with all the force of your fist, but I'm going to hit you with all the force of my soul. And I'm going to follow Jesus Christ. And I will not hit you back, but I will carry my cross and protest and suffer in his name. That's exactly what the African-American church did, guys. It is a powerful thing because it's subversive. If he turns the other cheek and I keep hitting him, what if that got serious? You'd be like, Tim's a monster. (laughs) I had thought that, maybe, but now it's clear. It unmasks my violence. Can you, by the way, give Chuck a hand? Thank you, Chuck. I appreciate that, man. I don't want to blast you there. Guys, it's about responding to the force of Satan with the force of Christ. And this is exactly what the church did. It's disarming because it's using power under to overcome power over. And catch this. Jesus is not saying let yourself get slapped around. That's not the point. Rather, Jesus is saying when the government assaults the image of God in a person, I want you to obey civilly. Civil means peacefully. Not by striking back with violence, but the vulnerability of the cross of Jesus Christ. The way of the cross, I want you to carry the cross and suffer in my name like Jesus did before Pilate because you'll expose the state's corruption. And you know what? That's exactly what the African-American church did. When they were beaten with billy clubs and, and attacked by police dogs, they didn't strike back. When they were hauled off in handcuffs to jail, you know what they did? They sang hymns. When they were hit with fire hoses, guys, that was the image that changed our nation's heart. It wasn't political power, uh, politicians standing up and saying, this is unjust. It was confronting injustice with soul power. It was a sight of peaceful men and women being abused for breaking a racist law. But Dr. King was like, we'll do it because we're following a higher law. Amen? The law of Jesus. It is the biblical tradition of civil disobedience. Just as Jesus stood before Pilate and said, I'm not going to strike back. I'll let myself be crushed. Americans, when they saw this on their television, we were shamed. And it was the vulnerability of Christ's church that unmasked the racist violence of our culture. And that was a turning point for us as a nation. Public opinion just quickly changed. President Johnson signed the Voting Rights Act in, I think it was 65, quickly after. In that moment, hundreds of years of legalized racism, segregation, discrimination just came crashing down. Guys, that's the power of the cross over the sword. Amen? It's powerful. The gospel of Christ is more powerful than the government of man. And guys, this is a part of our history. That's part of the church's history too. That's part of our story, and we should be proud of it. Amen? We should be proud of that. When the church of Jesus Christ stands up prophetically and uses the tactics of the cross, not man's sword. So never forget this. 
Your posture, my posture, our default, we're supposed to submit to authority as peace-loving believers. But when necessary, if our government ever abuses its moral authority, then as citizens of Christ's kingdom called to a higher law, then we actually say we're willing to suffer even if it means a cross to bring justice in the name of Jesus. Amen? Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's good government. Amen? Can we hear that? Can we hear it for the African-American church, by the way, who has spoken prophetically on many occasions? Man, I get amped up by this stuff. I get amped up by this. I'm sorry. I get so excited by this stuff because it, it's, it's very practical and it's very personal. And here's the deal. Next week, you are in for a treat. We have a special guest coming to Liquid. Um, this is a very exciting. Um, author Jonathan Merritt. Some of you may know Jonathan Merritt. He is a, a person who's written for Newsweek, for CNN, for, uh, for USA Today, uh, Christianity Today. He wrote a book called A Faith of Our Own, Following Jesus Beyond the Culture Wars. And he has agreed to come up here from down by CNN in Atlanta to speak to us live next week. Pretty cool, yeah? Welcome Jonathan Merritt. He's probably watching online right now. We're excited to have you, John. Um, I read this book over the summer, um, fascinating book, um, because here's the deal. He's a young guy. He actually grew up in an amazing position, um, having pancakes at the kitchen table with Jerry Falwell. His father was president of the Southern Baptist Convention, and so literally as a kid, he'd sit at the kitchen table eating cereal while Jerry Falwell and others spearheaded their, their plans as a religious right to sweep power into Washington. And this is his tell-all book about that. And he's had some reflections as what that means now to follow Jesus. And he has a provocative, you're going to be, next week you will be provoked to think. Because his provocative idea is that it's time to acknowledge we've lost the culture war. And that's a good thing because now we can just follow Jesus. Woo, get ready. You're going to hear it next week. He's going to be here live speaking, and then what's going to happen is I'm going to do kind of a Q&A uh, afterwards with him, and you'll be able to uh, give some questions and stuff. So if you're going to invite a friend, next week is the time to invite him for Jonathan Merritt. Excited about that, church? Excited to have that? It's going to be a good time. Thanks for listening to Liquid Church Media. If you were inspired or challenged by today's message, we hope you'll tell a friend. For more content, log on to liquidchurch.com or visit one of our campuses in the New Jersey metro area. Liquidchurch.com, where truth is relevant and grace wins.